Hi, I'm Mark Oppenheimer, the host of Unorthodox. And a happy Gentile New Year to you. I think this is the year that non-Jews are going to be calling 2016. 16, right? Of course, we Jews are in the middle of 5776. It's been a good one so far. And as the Gentile year ends, it seemed like it would be fun to look back at the year in Unorthodox. I mean, we're not even a year old, but we feel like over these 22 episodes, we've already learned how to walk and talk, or at least crawl, definitely talk. Our New Year's present to you is some of our favorite moments from our first 22 episodes. Thanks for the memory of sentimental verse, nothing in my purse. We thought we'd start with a little bonus track. You see, before we ever made our debut on the Panoply Network or on iTunes, we taped some fake warm-up episodes just to see if we could get the hang of it. These episodes were never meant to air. They exist in a hermetically sealed vault guarded by some very, very tough Israeli Defense Force veterans. But we've rescued one of them to share with you. You see... On those early fake episodes, we needed some guests who were happy to schmooze with us and pretend to be on a podcast without any promise of ever actually being on a podcast. And one of the first guys I asked was my friend Matthew Polly. He's an author. He wrote a book called Tapped Out about the two years that he spent becoming a mixed martial artist. That book, by the way, has sold something like a million copies, most of them to junior high boys. He's on all sorts of lists of favorite books that will get your junior high boy to read. He's now writing a book about Bruce Lee. He's an Irishman, but he's married to a Jewess. He's definitely Jew-curious. And most important, as a freelance writer, Matthew Pauly is a guy who can get away in the middle of the day and do stupid, unpaid gigs like talking to us. I have a quick, quick question, uh, and this is in, in those 15 seconds or less. What is your one least favorite? It, it doesn't have to be like a deep thing, but like one least favorite things about Judaism from, from your observations thus far. What uh... thing you'd do away with if you could? I will just off the immediately off the top of my head, you guys have way too many holidays. You really do need to edit the list down. So with guys like Matthew as our fake guests, we put together a sample episode. We sent it to Panoply. We got the green light. And then we were off to the races. On our second episode, that is our second episode that actually aired, we hosted the British fashion icon and downtown wit Simon Doonan, another very, very funny Gentile. Apparently, they do make funny Gentiles, one of the things we've discovered on Unorthodox. Simon talked to us about getting married to his Jewish husband, Jonathan Adler. Before the wedding, things took a rather uh, puerile or penile turn. So I wrote this article for The Observer, and I actually went to my doctor, and I said, I'm writing this theoretical piece. And uh, I did the cake, the, the caterer, the blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, adult circumcision... What's it like? Should I? Shouldn't I? And he said, under no circumstances. It's the most painful thing known to man. Did you know that? I could have guessed. I could have surmised, you know. You've never actually entertained the thought. Um, I've never seriously entertained the thought of circumcision. It was a theoretical question. If you're going to get graphic, I don't have an enormous problem in that department. With foreskin, I mean. Oh, God. You have, you have a, no, this gone is, all this nasty. Is, this is it? incredible. You have a dainty little... It, you have one, but it's not obtrusive. So you, you, yes, even it's in not that department, It's not... <laughs> even in that it department, you pass be. as Jewish. I mean, I it's do. completely meant to be. I do. Well, then that's amazing. It doesn't need to be for no? puts okay. in any way. Or, or like a <laughs> 
As you, our loyal listeners, know, before long, a couple running themes had emerged on our show, the Holocaust and cats. Now, as for me, I'm against both of those things, but Stephanie in particular has a thing for cats, particularly her cat, Cat Stevens. Anyway, in an early episode, we talked about a plan in Israel to deport stray cats to foreign countries. So, Leah, you're the senior Israel correspondent. Stephanie, you're the senior cat correspondent. It's true. I, you know, what they do to Israeli stray cats is is low on my list of concerns. But see, cats are like the national animal of Israel. Like anyone who goes on a birthright program sees them everywhere. Like they they are so inherent to the identity. The fabric and stray, of, there are stray dogs there too. But the cats. There's no, the something. Cats, there's the cats something. Are they way, are way everywhere, worse. and they're not uh, scared and, of and, you. And we're we're really looking we're really looking here at the. Uh, at the beginning of the cat final solution, so I'd like to play some uh, some music that that uh, befits that. If, if this is going to work, that'd be lovely. Um, can you imagine the scene? It's black and white, and all the cats are rounded up on the train on their way to Meowschwitz. Oh, or too to, soon. Or to Pergen Belsen. <laughs> uh, and a, a single dog dressed in red is like, "Goodbye, cats. Goodbye, cats." No. No one's and feeling the love. Steven Spielberg is directing this. Yeah. <laughs> where's, where's Spielberg? Mitzi's list. Can we do a pun on Shoah right now? Huh? This this is too far for me. This is where I draw the line. Liel, don't you just love the, though, the, 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 the creativity of these people? Liel Leibowitz with an iPhone and some Holocaust <laughs> minor key music is a dangerous thing. But like, the unbelievable, by the way. rounding up groups of people, it's like he couldn't have, he had to have seen that one coming. Like what it sounds it's like. It's like, hello, kitty. No, auf Wiedersehen, kitty. <laughs> auf Wiedersehen, kitty. To the train. Schnell. <laughs> schnell, die Katzen, schnell. <laughs> so amazing. I was really excited to get for one of our Gentile guests, Dan Savage, the well-known essayist and sex columnist. He came on the show and told us about an ethical dilemma that he had many, many years ago when he was living in West Germany in his early years as an openly gay man. So... I dated a German guy for a year, and he was really great and really hot. And this was in West Berlin, so that's how long ago it was. Uh, and he spoke almost no English, and I spoke almost no German, so there wasn't a lot of communication, just a lot of um, uh, sex. And six months into the relationship, I realized, listening to him talk to somebody else, that he thought I was Jewish. <laughs> you know, I had black hair then. I had, and I still have, a, a kind of a largish nose. I'm circumcised because of the, my generation. Uh, and he was absolutely crushed <laughs> when I told him that I was Catholic like him. He was from Bavaria, where everybody's Catholic. Would it have been wrong for me to let him continue to think I was Jewish because he was deriving a lot of pleasure from that thought? <laughs> Stephanie, what I mean, you- I think that it's like the context is important. Like, what, what, what part of, about you being Jewish was it? It was sort of like a sexual diplomacy thing that he was doing, like... I think it was a post-Nazi weird fetish transgressive thing that he was sleeping with this American Jew. Well, to, to use a Dan Savage term, I think you would have been, you know, GGG, good giving and game. And, and why not? You know, if he wants his, uh, his Holocaust repentant sexual fantasy, which, you know, I assume we all have at one stage or another of our normal upbringing, then that's fine. I just don't think there's any harm or foul in this. I think that if, I mean, you were probably getting off on his Germanness. He probably looked like 
Dieter from Sprockets. He was from a, a some sort. He was from a Vim Vendors film, and he was getting off on the fact that you know you looked kind of Semitic. I don't see the harm. I'm not offended as a Jew if you go on playing Jew there, provided that it's a short term thing. Like you guys are in, you're out. Within a year, you're gone. It'd be weird if it continued into engagement, marriage, that sort of thing. Yeah, that was my follow up question. Like if I had let him. If I let him think that, how long, you know, if we had wound up staying together, which is a possibility. Well, like the high holidays would have been awkward. Yeah, we do, you know, come home to my house for, uh, we call it Christmas, maybe. So then the Jewish holidays came, and for Yom Kippur, we did something that we really hope to do more of, the special episode. We talked, of course, about apologies, because Yom Kippur is, it's the season for apologizing. And in our tablet offices, we have an expert on apologies, our own Marjorie Ingle, who, in addition to writing a lot of stuff for us about children's books, about parenting, about culture, she writes a blog called Sorry Watch, in which she tracks and rates celebrity apologies. We asked Marjorie to come on and tell us about the Jewish tradition of apologizing and the advice that the tradition gives us for how to atone with one another. Maimonides has written he's – the, he's the big man on apology in right. Jewish 12th, tradition. Right, 12th century sage. He's the big man on everything. Yes, much, right? pretty much. <laughs> right. Philosopher, physician, right. chicken soup advocate. Right. Um, so he says lots of stuff about you have to if – if somebody doesn't forgive you when you apologize to them, you have to go back three times. Um, which I think is good because a lot of times our tendency is to be like, I tried and walk away. And he doesn't let you off the hook with that. Um, he also talks about the importance of making sure you don't recommit the sin. Um, it's not enough to be like, sorry, and uh, you know and you know it's going to happen again, as with so many celebrity debacles. He talks about the saying you're sorry without ensuring that you're not going to, you know, do it again is like going into a mikvah, a ritual bath, while holding a dead lizard. <laughs> Which and... is always uh, one of the classic <laughs> images of of Jewish education, right? Is like, like... The, the hypocrisy is like going into a, a ritual bath to purify yourself while holding a dead lizard. Exactly. And Susan, my co-blogger, and I are constantly saying to each other, drop the lizard. <laughs> <laughs> and then he also says that if you've been apologized to, you're supposed to forgive the person. Yeah. Right? You are not supposed to. You are just as in the wrong if you are just going to cling to your resentment. It's the equivalent of the uh, that Buddhist saying about, um, you know, holding a rock thinking you want to throw it at somebody else. You know, holding a hot rock is like burning your own hand. Um, right. But on com, you've come up with your own sort of updated, more yes. modernized sort of test for like what, yes. what does a good apology look like? So tell us about that, okay. that set of rules for what a good apology so, looks like. After doing this blog for almost three years, um, our sort of template for a perfect apology comes from both Maimonides and from a psychiatrist named Aaron Lazar, who wrote a book called On Apology. And uh, it really has five steps. First is say you're sorry. Second is say the thing that you're sorry for, which is a thing that a lot of people say, I'm sorry about what happened. I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. No, say what you did. Um then say you understand the import of what you did. You know, I understand that, you know, you have to get the rug dry cleaned. I understand that I embarrassed you in front of all of our coworkers. Um, make amends 
if that means like Chuck Klosterman, you make a donation to a charity in the person's name, whether it means you own the mistake in front of, you know, if you let if you threw somebody under the bus, un- unthrow them, pull them out from under the bus and take responsibility. And then what steps are you going to take to make sure it doesn't happen again? You know, have you put systems in place so you don't tweet a stupid thing from your work account again? Uh, will you talk to your kid about the horrible thing that they said and make sure that they won't say it again? That's the five steps. Hey, while we're at it, this is as good a time as any to say that we're going to do that apology show again in the future, I hope. So if you have any interesting stories, send them to us. Like when we do an apology episode next year for Yom Kippur, do you have an interesting story about trying to make things right with people or someone trying to make things right with you? Don't wait. Send it to us now at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Anyway, Dan Savage wasn't the only sex columnist we had on Unorthodox. Batsheva Marcus, who has a therapy practice in which she works with ultra-Orthodox Jews and modern Orthodox Jews and secular Jews and non-Jews, lots of Gentiles, the whole rest of the world, she came on our show to talk about her work and the conversation took, to use one of Dan Savage's favorite words, a somewhat rapey turn. I feel like it's so in our society we're so bad at separating what reality is from you know from from fantasy like it drives me crazy like women don't want to have rape fantasies because they feel like somehow it's saying they want to be raped but let's look at that like who's controlling that rape fantasy you're creating the raper he looks exactly like what you want he's saying exactly what he does exactly what you want he stops exactly what you want so it's the, it's the absurdity that we've just melded the two in our society that having fantasies is no longer okay I am going to get so much hate mail after this <laughs> podcast okay and no, you are, our listeners are lovers, not okay. fighters. The comedian Dave Hill came on Unorthodox, and he put us on the spot, insisting that we defend the sartorial choices of Hasidic men in Brooklyn. Um, you always see them wearing the black suits, and like it's sort of a, almost a uniform. Why not? If you're going to wear a black suit and like a, a white shirt and everything and a Stetson, why not get like a killer black suit and have it like really well look like a badass instead of like a schlub you know everyone could just do like one really nice black suit and be done with it or if you want to have more just like that looks great do you want five of those the real answer is going to disappoint you they're trying to look like they're the founder of their court in 18th century poland no, but I think I think it's isn't more that, than that. Isn't that it? I think it's more than that. Yeah, but that doesn't answer the question. Why not look like a good version of that? Right, eighteenth century, the rabbi. best tailored version you know, of that. Have you ever tried moving around in the city in the summer in a suit for more than like forty-five minutes? Oh yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. Like, what's the point? You could buy the nicest, you know, Armani. You're still going to be I'm a not sweaty, crumpled mess. No. No? I'm not even saying get the Armani suit. You can go. This is my this. You know now this is my advice to any man, anyone who's wearing a suit. If you get any suit, go to H and M. Just throw a couple of extra bucks at it. <laughs> get it properly tailored for yourself, and you'll be the best dressed guy in the room, no matter what suit you have. And I'm that's what I'm saying. Like, if you're gonna wear the suit, just wear the suit. Aaron McKean, the editor of the online dictionary Wordnik, and not a Jew, came on Unorthodox, and we asked her what her word of the year was. What was her favorite word from the past 12 months? I just found this Yiddishism that I had never heard before while getting ready to talk to y'all, and I really want it to make a comeback in a big way. Okay, well, you're on the right podcast. (laughs) We could bring it right to the Yids, so go ahead. A nook schlepper? Do you guys know this word? Sounds naughty. No. I don't know. Yeah. We're all, you've defeated our panel of experts. I want to be that. <laughs> uh, it's somebody who tags along behind you, like in a sycophantic way. That a is amazing. Nook 
Like they're schlepping in your nook of personal space. I like that. Yes. And I think that um, it would be a nice way to to say what I think the kids today use thirsty to mean. It's exactly what thirsty is. Now, this generated a lot of mail. About a dozen listeners wrote in to say that what Aaron had in mind was not something called nookschlepper, but the Yiddish word nochschlepper from noch, which is after, and schlep, to drag along. So a nochschlepper is someone who drags along after you. And I actually went on Wordnik and found that nochschlepper is still not there. So Aaron, you came on our show. You proposed this great word. We refined it. Our unorthodox listeners helped us get it right. We have the etymology. Next time I go back to Wordnik, I want to be able to look up Nochschlepper and find it there. One of the very fun things about doing this podcast is that we have so much talent right in the tablet offices. Probably our funniest coworker, though there's a lot of competition for that title, doesn't even write for us. Esther Werdiger is from a Lubavitcher Hasidic family in Australia, although, as she's always very quick to point out, her parents were rather non-traditional Hasids. When you're Orthodox from Australia, apparently you get the best of the empire and the best of the Torah, which means that Esther attended schools with names like Beth Rivka Ladies College. And I absolutely want to send my daughters to something called Beth Rivka Ladies College. It also means that you celebrate Hanukkah in Australia's summer months. For our Hanukkah episode, we invited Esther on the show to talk about Hanukkah in summer. But while in the studio, we learned that as a child, she had composed a rather hilarious ditty about Hanukkah. Over her protests, we made her sing it. God, I really have to rack my brains. This is... Uh, We've got, we have nowhere to be. This is 13 years ago. Oh, God, it's so dorky. I remember there's a bit at the end, like a like a uh, bridge. Well, it lasts for eight days, and for eight days it lasts. Oh, this is so terrible. Keep it's it, so terrible. Do it. We party to celebrate the miracle that passed when we defeated the strong and we had enough oil. We give presents to every broy and every... Goya. I know. I was like a, like a Bosch belt, like hammy, like 13-year-old. It makes no sense. So just to be clear, Esther had set that up for us as the best camp song ever. As an eight or nine-year-old, she thought that she had written this song that was going to tear across the world, both hemispheres, and would be sung in every possible summer camp. It only dawned on her when she was much, much older that, first of all, it was only of any passing interest to Jews. And what's more... Jews in the Northern Hemisphere would not have any opportunity to sing a Hanukkah song at summer camp. But the song lives. And then, of course, we did two live shows, one at Yale University and one at the Washington, D.C. Jewish Community Center, where we totally sold out the room and rocked the beltway hard. Washington Jews totally know how to party with a podcast. Two highlights from Washington. First, I told the story of what happened when my four daughters spotted Christmas trees strapped to the tops of cars on the highway in mid-December. And I said... Ellie, they're, they're bringing the trees to the house. And she said, so you mean that every time I see a tree on top of a van, there's a Christian in the car? <laughs> and I said, yes, that's exactly right. So then she, she, she like elbows Clara in the other car seat, who's five, and Rebecca's in her booster. She, she's eight, and she says, Rebecca, Clara, there are Christians in all of those cars. <laughs> but the funny thing is, I haven't broken to them that every time we're on the highway... There are Christians everywhere. <laughs> Washington also featured the live debut of the unorthodox podcast Jubador, Jim Nabel, who wrote a special anthem for the show. He's a Jubador riding through the country Looking for a place to hang his kipper without fear And everywhere that he explores he finds wanting 
No one seems to want the Jubador here. Everybody. No one seems to want the Jubador here. I'll be back in 2016. Me, Liel, Stephanie, even Jim Nabel, the Jubador, our producer, Sarah, our editor, Julie, and some terrific guests, including Jill Kargman from the TV show Odd Mom Out, Catherine Burns, the artistic director of The Moth, Christian pacifist Stanley Hauerwas, my brother Daniel, who has a book coming out, and more, much more. Subscribe to Unorthodox on iTunes. Subscribe to Tablet's print magazine on our website, tabletmag.com. Send us a note at unorthodox at tabletmag.com and tell us how we're doing. We especially like the angry mail. Have a wonderful new year. Shalom, friends. <laughs>